tremendous honor to be with you all today, especially on a special occasion like this. Um, as was mentioned, um, I was a church planner uh, way back in the day, before some of you were born probably. Uh, back in 1996, I planted a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and um, that, that was a real gift to be part of a community like that. I'll just say this very upfront, upfront from the very beginning, that the chance to be part of a community, uh, especially as young people, um, that uh, changes your heart, forms you, um, provides for you so, so much of uh, the, the emotional, spiritual community needs, uh, don't take that for granted. It, it isn't always there. I feel like the old, old guy now, but it isn't always there. There are special moments when God graciously gives you a chance at special communities. Uh, it's not a given. Uh, so I'm just so thankful for this community. Uh, like I said, back in 1996 when we started a church in, in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, we were an intentionally urban, multi-ethnic, justice-oriented church. And back then, literally you can count in your hand the number of churches, maybe in the U entire U.S., that had that kind of intentionality. Uh, but it's been so great to see over the last 25, 30 years, so many more churches with that kind of intentionality, urban focus, justice ministry oriented, uh, racial reconciliation and justice as a value. So again, my kudos for those of you who are uh, a part of this community and a, and a special thanks for me, uh, uh, from me for being allow, allowing me to be a part of your anniversary service. Um, so I've actually been a professor now for 16 years. This is my 17, 17th year of teaching at a seminary in the academic community. Prior to that, I was a pastor for 17 years. So when I, when I shifted from being a, a pastor to a professor, uh, there were some, um, some major changes emotionally, psychologically I had to deal with. Uh, one major change was I really missed being part of a community for that extended period of time, pastoring a community. Uh, I was at my church for 10 years, uh, and it's doing well, so much better than when I was there. So it's great to see the church continue and the vision that was established early on. Uh, so I missed that part of big, uh, shifting from being a pastor to a professor. But what I don't, didn't miss, and I still don't miss, is that when you're doing frontline ministry like all of you are doing, when you're in the context of, of urban systems, uh, when you're trying to bring the, the, the joy of the gospel into really difficult sets of circumstances, uh, when you're trying to go against, um, I believe, and this is kind of my spiritual background, I believe that one of the strongest uh, strongholds of Satan is uh, hostility along racial division and racial lines. Uh, and uh, the Satan has been able to do that remarkably well, particularly in the United States. I mean, just brilliantly has, has orchestrated this extreme hostility across the races and the racial divide. And so when churches confront that racial divide, you better believe that the one who made that racial divide is going to get pretty upset. So all the things that you're trying to speak into urban systems, uh, um, uh, justice issues, um, the, the things that kind of cause division in the world that you're trying to bring grace and mercy and hope and faith, um, you better believe that you have a spiritual bullseye on your back. And that I don't miss. I don't miss as a pastor, as a member of a community uh, in the urban centers that's trying to take on the strongholds to constantly in some sense feel like there's a, 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 a spiritual bullseye on your back. Um, so I want to give you a word of encouragement, because when you are walking around in that context and that reality, that spiritual reality, um, it is very easy to be discouraged. And I guarantee you, 
the last four years, you've seen some really good things happen. But I also guarantee you, you've seen some really challenging things. And there are definitely places of discouragement. So uh, we're going to look at the book of Haggai. <laughs> good luck finding that. Uh, but if, uh, if we can put the slides up, the book of Haggai is in the Old Testament, a uh, very obscure book of the Bible. I like teaching on obscure books of the Bible because I can make stuff up and nobody knows. Because uh, nobody's read this book. So book of Haggai, in fact, I wrote a commentary on the book of Lamentations. Nobody comments on it because, hey, we, we don't read the book of Lamentations. So here's the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter, I forgot the chapter, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And I want to give you the historical context of this, of this book. Uh, mainly because when we look at the books of the Bible and you're reading a book for the first time of the Bible, uh, it's always a good idea to know the context of why that book was written, uh, a letter by Paul to a community. Uh, if you take that out of context, you can make a lot of mistakes with what he's actually saying. Uh, even the things about uh, Israel's relationship with God, if you read that story and you read it out of context, there's a lot of mistakes you can make. So it's always important to understand the context of any text uh, uh, that you're going to start studying. So let's think about the book of Haggai. Haggai is written at a very specific moment in Israel's history. Some of you know the background. Israel, at one point, was a great and powerful nation, um, especially under two kings. Uh, their names are familiar to you, King David and King Solomon. David was a great military leader. And as a result of his military victories, the borders of Israel were very large and expanded. So under David, uh, Israel became this powerful military kingdom. Solomon, his son, was a great, actually, economic mind. Um, and he was able to build up the wealth of Israel, mainly by taxing people, but still he was able to build up the wealth of Israel. And so after the reign of David and Solomon, you had one of the wealthiest nations in that time, and you had one of the strongest nations of that time. And that was part of God's blessing upon Israel as the chosen people. But what happens subsequent to the reign of David and Solomon is that the nation slowly begins to deteriorate. One, they walk away or move away from obedience to God, and they start worshiping idols instead of Yahweh. Uh, they stop, uh, stop worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem and start worshiping in other spaces. Uh, so something begins to change in the long history of Israel, where this once great nation that had been following Yahweh and obedient to Yahweh and worshiping Yahweh actually begins to drift away, and because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, God actually brings judgment upon the nation of Israel. And the worst judgment that Israel faced and was, uh, was, uh, was put upon them was what we would now know as the exile, meaning they lost their home, the promised land. Uh, they lost their identity as God's chosen people, and they were sent away into another land, as we know. It's called Babylon, which is like the worst place to go. And that's where they were sent away. Uh, in God's amazing grace, he offers forgiveness to his people, and they come back to Israel. But now they are a defeated, conquered people, they have been away in exile for many, many, many years. They've lost their identity. They don't, they don't know who they are anymore. Uh, their home is a wasteland. Uh, this land that had once been flowing with milk and honey uh, had been devastated because the Babylonians, when they came and conquered, they burned all the crops and then they salted the fields so that nothing would grow on that ever again. So it went from this uh, fertile uh, land to the, the barren desert. Um, and, and how are they going to rebuild Jerusalem? And the point was, they weren't going to be able to. So the people come back, and they start trying to rebuild Jerusalem, their capital city. They try to put a wall up. You know that story in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, they try to rebuild the temple. Now, remember the temple. The temple, especially under Solomon, 
was the most magnificent building in all of the ancient Near East at that time. Some of you know the story that the Queen of Sheba came from far, far away and came to Jerusalem because she heard about the glory of this temple. The temple was the most magnificent building. It was the Taj Mahal of its time. I'm trying to think of an equivalent in the U.S., but I really can't think of one because it was so magnificent. It was a building, Trump Tower, I don't know, <laughs> gold toilets everywhere in that temple. Uh, it was a beautiful building. It was made with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. All of it was filled throughout that temple. And again, people would come from miles and miles and miles. The Queen of Sheba would come and say, this is the most beautiful building around. But of course, when they were defeated and conquered, when the Babylonians came, they wiped out that uh, temple. Of course, they took all the gold and silver. They took all the precious metals and precious stones and, and they took all the really expensive wood that was used to build that temple. And all that was left when they came back from exile was a pile of rocks, a hut, a, 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 a rubble, just kind of rubbish rubble, kind of lying all over the place and they tried to rebuild. Now again, they're people out of exile, no money, no resources, no strength, no identity, no sense of who they are. And they're trying to rebuild this temple, the temple of Yahweh. So they just kind of move stones around, move it from one side to the other, kind of throw things together. I was walking over here uh, from another space, and uh, you, you notice uh, all the homeless encampments, right? And what do they do? They just kind of throw things together. It's the only, only thing they know how to do. I mean, it's, uh, those are the resources they have, just a, a chair they found outside or, or some kind of blanket that's lying on the ground, and they just kind of throw it all together. And, and sadly, that's what the temple of Yahweh would have looked like. Take the rubble lying around and just throw it on top of each other, and that was their temple. And in fact, in verse 3, uh, Haggai says to, uh, Yahweh says to the prophet Haggai, how does this temple look to you now? Remember what it looked like in its former glory. But right now, does it not seem to you like nothing? At one point, the house of Yahweh was filled with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. And now you look at your life, you look at this temple, and it's just a pile of rubble, pile of rocks thrown together almost haphazardly. And they say, this is nothing. This is garbage. This is a dump particularly compared to the temple we used to have. So when you start thinking about discouragement, especially when you're a church or a Christian or follower of Jesus, one of the discouragements that you can encounter is the real sense of self-image. Who am I before God? Am I worthwhile? Um, I, I remember this study when I was in college. I actually encountered this study by um, a pastor who was researching um, Asian-American self-image. And he determined that Asian men had the worst self-image of any people group in the United States. Uh, have you heard of this study? They actually did this in depth and asked, why is it that Asian men have such poor self-image? And the answer was because of Asian women. Um, let me explain that a little bit because that's, <laughs> that's going to cause a lot of trouble. But the, the point of that was Asian women in American society actually present as desirable, actually present as attractive, actually present as someone that it can fit into larger society. Um, Asian women have higher rates of outmarriage than Asian men, meaning they marry outside of Asian culture more frequently and, and more regularly. Asian men have the, one of the lowest rates of outmarriage. 
and Asian men, especially in the media, a little bit changing, thank you, Simi Lu, but recently in the media, uh, but historically, Asian men have not been portrayed as strong people, right? I mean, yeah, we were the kung fu guy, right? Maybe. But if you look at some of the older movies, we're always the kind of the, the, the bumbling, uh, you know, uh, 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 maybe smart, but like you know, this kind of off the wall, off the, you know, weird uh, Asian person. Uh, and, and, and you look at these early portrayals of that. And then how does that shape our self-image? How does that make us think about ourselves? Um, growing up, I, I struggled with this. Um, I struggled with what is my, not just place in God's kingdom, but certainly my place in this world as an Asian immigrant. I came to the U.S. when I was five years old. Uh, and this, this is, I'm, I turned 55 this month. I know, I don't look it, thank you. Um, you heard the phrase, black don't crack, Asian don't raisin. Write it down, tweet that, Asian don't raisin. We age really, really well. So 50 years ago, I come to the United States. And, but it's hard to tell when I'm looking at me now. But when I was a kid, I was actually a really, really cute kid. Like, you know, everybody says that. But no, but I was really, really a cute kid. So my, my parents thought I was so cute, they in actually in, uh, uh, enrolled me in this, uh, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, uh, baby modeling contest. I'm not kidding you. I'm four years old, and I'm in this modeling contest. And they make us come up, and they make us, you know, do these little tricks. And um, I actually finished first place in the whole Seoul region as the cutest baby <laughs> Yes, thank you, in all of Seoul, Korea. And then I went on to the Nationals and finished, ah, sorry, second place. I was runner-up. Uh, and should the first place candidate be poisoned of some kind, then I would have been the, the actual winner. Uh, but the, <laughs> but I, I finished this. I, I blew it in the bathing suit competition. That was, I'm really convinced that I blew it in that portion of it. So I was this cute kid. It opened up a career for me uh, in modeling in Korea. So this is the absolute truth. Four years ago, I'm in Korea. I'm at, uh, at uh, one of those uh, souvenir shops, and I'm looking through postcards. And I saw a postcard package. I was like, why does this postcard package look so weirdly familiar? I open it up. I'm not kidding you. Fifty years later, I saw photos of myself in that postcard package. So if you go to Korea and find a postcard package and it looks like me, it actually is me. They still sell it 50 years later in Korea. So that was kind of the, the fun part of my life. I say I peaked at five years old because that was, that was the, both of the best years of my life. Uh, my, my, uh, my parents wanted me to learn martial arts early on. So as soon as I could walk, two years old, I'm in Taekwondo, like starting Taekwondo at two. By five or six, before we came to the U.S., I, I got my black belt. And, so, uh, and then my, my kids wanted me to excel in academics. So when I was four or five years old, uh, they put me into uh, second grade. So I was in second grade classes when I was five years old. And yes, I had, I was, uh, there was no choice but for me to end up as a three in the Enneagram. I was like assigned that from birth. Uh, so those were kind of the, the wonderful things that I remember experiencing. I, again, I peaked at age five. I was, uh, I was uh, in the movies. I was, uh, I was uh, an academic star. And I was, you know, a, a black belt in Taekwondo. You, you kind of think about, you know, what does a five-year-old want to achieve in life? I, I had done every single one of those things. Uh, but after, after I turned six years old, our family moved to the United States. And then everything changed. So again, 50 years ago, there was no demand for cute oriental kids on television. That just wasn't happening. Uh, I had to be put back into a lower grade because I, my English wasn't good enough to be in second grade. Um, and so all of these things began to kind of fall apart. And I guess the, maybe the thing that really shook us uh, was that when I was about eight years old, my dad left our family. 
And um, my, my parents had been fighting and all that stuff, but my dad kind of left and left us with very little provision financially because we, we kind of lost touch with him. And so my mom, single mom, um, high school graduate but not college degree, uh, like many immigrant parents, uh, barely speaks English. Uh, she took the, the only jobs that she could find. Uh, it happened to be in inner city Baltimore, uh, happened to be working in a carryout in inner city Baltimore, and then at night she was working as a nurse's aide in an inner city nursing home. Uh, so she was working 20 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, but even with that, you know, immigrant salary, kind of, you know, some of you have immigrant parents or grandparents. You know that's very common for many of us who come from immigrant families. The, the parents working long, long hours and, and just doing everything they can to give us opportunity. Uh, that was my mom. Um, and because we couldn't afford to, to live in a better neighborhood, I, we ended up, as I joke, in a rough neighborhood in Baltimore, which is every neighborhood in Baltimore. So I grew up in a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. And the community was a third poor black, a third poor white, and a third poor immigrants, most of us Korean. And uh, we had poverty in common. All of us were on food stamps. All of us were on Section 8 housing. All of us were in these spaces where we really couldn't afford to be out of that neighborhood. But what I started noticing is that we still didn't get along with each other. That's still one of the things that 50 years later or, or 45 plus years later, I still try to process that we had poverty in common. And yet the racial division was so deep that we couldn't even get along with each other in that neighborhood, in a very small neighborhood, rough neighborhood in Baltimore. Uh, we had very little food in the house. Uh, we were on food stamps. And now 50 years later, it's just so hard to think about. Uh, I tell my kids, like, I was really skinny when I was, your, you know, when I was, a, uh, was a child. And I was like, yeah, but dad, that's not true right now. I was like, yeah, but you got to understand, we didn't have food in the house. We really had no food in the house. Uh, we did have, some of you, are, you know, might know about this. Back in the day, the government used to give out blocks of cheese to poor families. That was like food stamps and blocks of cheese is what you got. So we had a block of cheese. Now, this is back in the day when Koreans didn't know what to do with cheese, right? What, you can't, you don't put cheese on anything in Korean food. Now you're, you're getting creative with it. But back then we had the, with, my mom put it in the freezer. We had a, a chunk of frozen cheese in the freezer. And I think it might still be there because when we moved out, we left it there. So you got this, you know, and that was our, our life. We were so poor that we didn't, we got the government to help. I remember the embarrassment of going to the grocery store and my mom having to pull out food stamps and seeing my friends who were also at that grocery store and, and, and they're kind of watching us and, and as, as we're paying with food stamps. Um, those are the kind of things that lead to uh, a sense of, of poor self-image. Those are the kind of things that make you say, well, what's, what's my future going to be in, 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 in the hood in Baltimore? Uh, eating because we had food stamps and only because we had food stamps. And I, I remember around that time, maybe not long after that time, um, the president of the United States would get on TV and say things like, oh, we've got all these welfare queens living off the government. We've got all these people who are trying to cheat the government They're just because they're lazy. And I remember thinking, my mom's the hardest working woman in the world. And here's some person, a former actor, telling me that my mom was lazy and that she was a welfare queen. Uh, and, but that contributes to your sense of self. But what's amazing is that in the middle of, and I could describe more, the, the cockroaches and the, just the whole story of what it was like growing up in the hood. But what's amazing is that in the middle of that brokenness and in the middle of that lostness, in the middle of feeling like I had nothing, that's actually when God found me. And it's when I experienced, maybe in some ways, I experienced God the most as a poor, lonely skinny back then, short, 
Korean kid in the middle of that absence of any positive self-image, totally lacking self-confidence, that God still finds me and seeks me out like the one, the one out of the hundred. It's an amazing story. And I hope the church continues to repeat that story because it's the story that the world needs to hear. Not that God found us or made us into this great achieving person, but that God found us in the lowest of places, in the most difficult of circumstances. Now, into that, this passage begins to speak. In fact, Haggai says three statements here, or Yahweh says through Haggai three statements. Be strong, be strong, be strong. You'll notice that three times. He addresses three different groups, but each time he has what's called the imperative, imperative command. God is commanding his people, be strong. He says it three times. But if you actually are interested in how the Old Testament often works, especially in the prophets, God would usually give an imperative, imperatival command and will always follow that up with what we call the indicative, meaning he tells you to do something, but then he tells you how to do it. He won't tell you to be holy like I am holy and say, okay, that's it. Figure that out for yourself. So when he says be strong gives us an imperative command to be strong, then he's going to give you a description of how you can be strong. And so this imperative command of Haggai chapter 2 verse 4, he gives you the vision. He gives you what's up ahead and what he wants you to do and become. Be strong. You will be strong. You will become strong. Three times he says this. And then in the following verses, he gives you three reasons why you can be strong. So let's take a look at these three, verse, uh, three reasons. The first reason comes with this idea of covenant. Be strong because we have a covenant of grace with God. Be strong because I have covenant with you. Uh, let's actually, I'm sorry, I might have gotten this mixed up. Let's go to this one. Right. Uh, after that, sorry. My apologies. I think I got the orders wrong on this. Here we go. Verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit, keyword, remains with you remains with you. Now, think about the covenant that Israel made with God coming out of Egypt. The covenant in the ancient Near East was almost always, except for the covenant with Yahweh, almost always predicated on good people doing good things and winning the favor of the higher power. Consistent narrative throughout the ancient Near East. The peasant, the peon, the, the workers would do good things and then the Lord, the, the, uh, the, uh, the owner, the king, would actually give favor to the peasants. And that was a consistent covenant that was made all throughout the ancient Near East. However, the covenant that God made with Yahweh was not based on works. It was based on grace. Because remember this moment in Israel's history. They've done everything wrong. They screwed up big time. They did everything wrong. They disobeyed. They followed idols. They even got exiled. Everything that they did, they did not measure up to the covenant God had with them. Yet God says in this moment, I never left you. My spirit remains among you. I have a covenant with you. And this is so important for us as young believers especially. We have a covenant of grace and not of works. Because if we ever tried to achieve and earn God's love, we would fail absolutely miserably. And so even though they screwed up, everything they were, could have done wrong, they did wrong. God still says at the end of all that brokenness, all that mess, he says, my spirit is still there with you. It remains with you. I never left you. 
because you have a covenant of grace and not a covenant of works. This came very alive to me um, uh, about two or three years after my dad left my family. I actually got a phone call. I hadn't seen him in two years, but kind of out of the blue, my dad calls me. And um, it, it was kind of a strange phone call. We were living in Baltimore at the time, and it just kind of goes over a whole bunch of things. Uh, maybe, maybe typical Asian, uh, Asian father, but he was talking about, well, what are your grades in school? course. Are you in all the activities that you need to be involved? Are you, are you in a sports activity and you're in, a, in, a, in all these clubs? And he's kind of going over that list and then he starts like quizzing me on random things. Like, well, who's your favorite Renaissance artist? I think I said Picasso. I was 10 years old. What did I know? And so he's kind of going through and it was like a 15, 30 minute phone call where he just kept grilling me and drilling me with like, what do you know? How are you doing? And I, I started realizing that my, my father had a list for me. My, my earthly father had a list of all the things I needed to do in order to earn his love. I had to get straight A's in school. I had to get into the next stage of a good school. I had to excel in sports and excel in clubs and all these things. And I remember getting off that call after about 30 minutes with my dad and just crying. As a 10-year-old kid, just, just falling apart and crying. Because I had just heard from my earthly father that if I wanted his love, I was going to have to earn it. A covenant of works. Now, what happens when a, something like that happens is that you very deeply internalize that idea, right? That you have to achieve, attain, and accomplish in order to earn the favor of the person in many ways, your parents, that are the, the most important person in your life. That shapes your identity. So when I internalize that, I, even after I became a Christian, that list transferred from my earthly father's list and it became my heavenly father's list. And now I began to have an internal list. I didn't even need somebody to tell me. I began to have an internal list of all the ways and all the things I needed to do to earn my heavenly father's love. Just the same way I had a list to earn my earthly father's love. And I did those things. I became a leader in my youth group. I went to college and became a part of a, of a good uh, um, um, uh, uh, college fellowship. I even went to seminary because that's what a good professional Christian does in order to win the favor of God. And I even got A's in seminary. All my, my fellow students are like, oh, your A's in seminary don't count. No, it counts. It matters in the whole of scheme of life. And so I would get straight A's in seminary. And I realized that I had become this professional Christian that every checklist that you thought of, of what it would take to be a good Christian, I was, I was meeting up to. But there's another side of that. Because if you, if you have a list like that, there's absolutely no way you can check off all of those boxes. It's impossible. In fact, you start accumulating another list, not just the things you've done well, but you start making a list of all the things you've done wrong. And I began to accumulate that list, and that became even longer and longer than the list of things that I thought I had done right. And now I'm thinking, this eliminates me from ever being a pastor. This disqualifies from me from ever serving God. And that list got longer and longer and longer. And I remember so vividly, in my senior year in, in seminary, I told people, I'm, I'm actually not going into pastoral ministry. I'm actually going to kind of walk away. I, I still have my faith, but I wasn't going to walk. I wasn't going to be a, a minister. I wasn't going to be a pastor. I wasn't going to ordain. I'm, I'm pretty much going to walk away from all of this. And I remember, the, you know, again, friends, community, 
those who come alongside you. So a couple of my friends, uh, three of them, said, hey, let's, let's take a road trip together, senior year, springtime. Spring um, and we ended up going to uh, Toronto, and there was a conference in Toronto at that time. And, uh, and it, was, it was a powerful conference, and there's some good happened to it, some crazy stuff happened too, but some good stuff was happening there. And we get there, and I'm still kind of, and I'd already told my friends, hey, I'm not going to be a pastor, I'm, I'm kind of done with this, uh, because of this list of failures. And I remember walking into that gathering and people are being prayed for and, and people are laying hands and they're praying for people. And I, I said, I got to get out of here because I don't want them praying for me. Because if, if they pray for me, I'm going to just break down and cry at my failures. I'm going to just keep going over that list and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just, just melt into this pile of, of tears because I feel like such a miserable, miserable failure. So I, I actually got down on my knees so that they wouldn't see me. And I started covering my head with my hands and I began to pray and I said, God... I, there's no way I could serve you. Look at this list. Look at the ways I failed. Look at the ways I just don't measure up to what you need a servant of God to be. God, look at this list. Look at this miserable failure that I am. The people start gathering around me. And even as I'm crying out to God, look at this list, God. Look how much of a failure I am. And it is one of maybe the three times that I've heard literally the audible voice of God. People say, "Don't." no, it happens. God can speak audibly. And the words he said to me was, what list are you talking about? What list are you talking about? I've never kept a list for you. As far as the east is from the west, I have removed your iniquities away from you. Your sin has been taken away by the blood. But also, I have never kept that list. That's not my relationship with you because I never had a covenant of works with you. I've always had a covenant of grace. And all those failures you counted as disqualifying, they were washed away. And I see you as a person who is going to have the Spirit of God remaining in you. We have a list. And I would also say as a church community, we begin to form a list. This is what I want our church to be. We have, a, we have a list of ways that we want our church to be this size or this makeup or this budget. Or, and there's a lot of pressure. I travel all over the U.S. and meet churches and speak at churches. I know what that feels like. I've been a church planter. I've, I've pastored ch- churches. I know what that feels like to have a list of things that you feel like you want to do and a list of failures that seem to get larger and larger and larger. And God's word for you today is what list are you working off of? I've never had a list for you. The covenant with this church with God is not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. That was the first be strong. The second be strong is found in verses 6 through 8, where God says, I will bring all of my creative power at work in you. I will bring all of my power. In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Go to the next uh, verse. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, go back to that previous verse. <laughs> sorry. Um, what we're seeing in verse six, verse uh, six through eight, is that God has created the heavens and the earth, and all of that creative power He's going to make available for you. And we say, wait, this building doesn't have gold and silver. Yeah, but I own all the gold and silver, says the Lord. But we're not just we're not as powerful as as others. We're not as dynamic as others. But God says. I own all that power and dynamism. It belongs to me. And do you not think that I will bring my creativity, my power to create, my creation power, that same power that created the heavens and the earth, the same power that put the moon and the stars in their place, do you not think that that power is what will come into your life? 
my daughter is now 22 years old. When she was two, she was diagnosed with a uh, health condition called neutropenia. Uh, some of you know neutropenia. Neutropenia is actually when the body attacks itself. Um, it, the, her white blood cells were attacking her neutrophil count, which was uh, the part of the white blood cells that actually fight bacteria. So you can imagine my daughter is like one or two years old. Um, she's teething as, as, at, at that time. And there's the amount of bacteria that was collecting in her mouth and her body, because they had killed off her neutrophils, could not fight the bacteria infection. So we were running to the hospital like every other day. Uh, they would pump her full of antibiotics. Her, she would come home and her fever would spike to 105 degrees. And then we would uh, have to take her back into the hospital. It was going on for several, several months. And um, most of y'all don't have little kids and those, those moms and dads that do. You know how painful it is when you, there's nothing you can do to help your little child. It's the most brutally uh, unsettling thing I've ever experienced to see my little girl going through that kind of pain and suffering. Uh, it was actually around the time that my dad was dying. My dad had a stroke. He, had, uh, he was now in a hospice. And um, I actually went down to, to go to the hospice to kind of check in on him because we knew he was dying. Uh, but my daughter was scheduled for, uh, for a, 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 actually a kind of an experimental treatment. And uh, they said, we, it's not FDA approved, but if you're approved, we want to try this because they had tried everything else for six months. Steroids, prednisone, everything they've tried didn't work. Her neutrophil count was not coming up. And so he said, well, could you hold off on it? My, my dad is dying, and I like to actually maybe hold off on it until then. So, okay, we'll hold off on the treatment. So I go down to Maryland, which is where I'm from, uh, where my parents live, uh, and my, my, my dad is dying. He's in the hospice. And I remember so vividly realizing that he was going to die and that I needed to take care of business. And on his deathbed, my dad and I reconciled in a, in a truly deep, deep, profound way. And then I went back after the funeral uh, to back up to Boston, where we were living at the time, and um, I uh, said, they said, well, we can't wait any longer. We want to do this experimental treatment. So I said, well, hold off. They're going to do it on Sunday morning. So let me go to my church. I'm going to pray and ask the church to pray. The church prayed. And then they administered the drugs that morning as the church was praying. And then I went back. And that night, uh, they checked the, her count. So in the morning, her count was zero. She had zero neutrophils in her body. Uh, the average number is like 800 to 1,000. When, they, when we went back that night, she said, well, we're just going to test it. It takes about three or four days for the drug to take hold. They tested it. Said, oh, it's, it's 1,200. I said, it usually doesn't work that fast. But hey, what do we know? I realized, no, this is, this is the, the power of God's creative power. The same power that made heavens and the earth. The same power that gives our body the capacity to fight infection. That power God brought back into my daughter. I also think about was also a part of that, my healing. And, and I still, I'm tr still trying to process this. That the thing about uh, autoimmune diseases, especially something like neutro uh, neutropenia, is that the body attacks itself. It's, it's killing itself. And I thought about all those years of hatred and anger towards my dad. Was, my, was I spiritually killing myself? Was I emotionally destroying my own body in that sense? And I think when there was that confession and repentance and reconciliation, the power of God was able to come through in such a dramatic way and bring healing to my daughter. As I said, she's now 22, recently graduated from Pepperdine out on the West Coast. Um, after that 
test, and after that, um, that, that test, she has not had a single bout of neutropenia in over 20 years. Never, ever again. We checked it over and over again. Every th- three months, we would go in and say, is it okay? Is it okay? No recurrence of neutropenia. And now she's a very, very healthy and strong uh, 20, 22-year-old young woman. Um, God wants to bring his creative power into your life. He wants to bring the fullness of his power into your life and into your church. The third reason God says to be strong is that God is keep, he keeps on working in you. He's not finished with you. And that he will fill your house with his glory. It says in verse 6-9, the desired of nations of, of nations will come and the desired of nations will fill this house, meaning the temple they had just built, with the glory of God and the glory of this house, this ramshackle hut, this pile of rubble will surpass the glory of the former house. Now, if you're hearing this, it makes no sense. What was the former house? Solomon's temple. Gold, silver, Precious metal, precious stones. The most magnificent building in all of the ancient Near East. And they're saying, um, uh, um, Haggai is saying, that gorgeous temple, that's going to be surpassed by this pile of rocks. It doesn't make sense. Until the explanation is given, because the desired of nations will come and will fill this house with his glory. Who is the desired of all nations? Jesus. And we know this in history. That that very temple that the people of God said, this is just a shack. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pile of rubble. That very temple is the actual temple that Jesus of Nazareth will actually walk into. And the second Jesus walks into that temple, it stops being a pile of rocks. It becomes the most magnificent building anywhere in the world because the glory of Jesus fills that temple. I guarantee you, when you compare yourself to other churches, you will find an unlimited number of churches that, have, that do things better than you. I guarantee you. There will be churches larger than you. There are churches with better worship. There are churches with better strobe light effects. There are churches with, yes, even better looking people. I guarantee you that there will be churches anywhere, everywhere. You will find churches that do this better than you, that are better in this way. There is an unlimited number of churches that will have their buildings and their work laid with gold and silver, precious metal and precious stones. But despite all that, can you be a pile of rubble filled with the desire of all nations and the glory of God? Can you be that place? When I was in uh, college, I was a leader of my campus fellowship. And in my senior year, I led a Bible study group of freshmen. I had the, the blast. It was a great, great moment. I wanted to kind of lead this fellowship uh, uh, freshman group. I got really close to this group, and I still am in, in touch with many of them today. Um, after I, I graduated from, from Columbia, um, I ended up not going to where my friends did. They wanted to work on Wall Street. They became doctors and lawyers. I went to seminary. Uh, and so I took a slightly different career path than many of my friends in, in college who went on to have very successful careers in other fields. And so uh, after I started the church in Cambridge, uh, one of my friends from college visited me. And he was extraordinarily successful, uh, one of the, the guys who was in my freshman study. Uh, after he had graduated uh, Columbia with an economics degree, he got an internship at uh, the Swiss bank, uh, USB, I think is the, the bank that he got. And these are really, as some of you know, if you've been in, in banking, that's a plum position. And uh, because of that, when he came back from that two-year internship in USB, he came back and was hired by a fairly large um, uh, Wall Street company. 
And because he's very smart and because he was able to succeed, uh, by the age of 26, he was made vice president and he was overseeing the tech sector. This is now, now back in the day, but it was around the time that the first tech bubble was kind of building up. So all that's to say at the age of 26, he was raking it in. I mean, he was making gobs and gobs of money overseeing a tech sector for a major bank in, in, the, in New York. And so he took a few days off to visit me in Boston, and uh, he's telling me about how great it is to be a, a banker and on Wall Street during this, especially during this kind of bubble that, that was happening, this, this growth sector. And he was telling me about like, how uh, they would have uh, soirees at the, at the Met. The, the, his company would rent out the entire Metropolitan Museum, and they would have all the VPs would have parties there. Uh, he told me about um, now he doesn't know anything about basketball. I'm a huge basketball fan, and he said, "Oh, our our company has um, has box seats right behind the Knicks bench." And I went to one of them, and I was sitting behind this tall guy. I got in my way. I think his name was Patrick Ewing or something like that. It's like, Patrick Ewing? <laughs> yeah, he, he dripped some sweat on me. It was really offensive. Pat, I would kill to be drip, uh, sweated upon by Patrick Ewing. And so he's talking on and on about all the, quirk, all the, uh, the benefits of being in, in the corporate world. And this is the one that got to me because I'm, I'm a, I'm a sold-out carnivore. I mean, that's my kryptonite. If, I, if, I, if there's a major weakness, it's, it's red meat. And he was talking about going to these steakhouses. Like back then, it would have been $100. I'm sure it's like $500 now. And how he was cutting into a steak with a butter knife because it was so tender and it was melting. He said, I didn't even have to chew this beef. It was melting in my mouth. And I'm literally drooling as he's telling me the story of all these great things uh, that he was doing as, a, as, a, as someone uh, um, in the corporations on Wall Street. And my thought all this time was, one, I'm pretty sure I was smarter than you in college. Why are you making so much more money than me? Why are you doing so much better than me? I said, so, hey, I, I want to tell you about what I do on a typical day because you told me what, what, what you do on a typical day. So we went and visited uh, one of the families that, uh, that I worked with in, in Boston. It was a Haitian family, immigrant family. Uh, both parents were working long hours. The, the dad was an orderly at a hospital and then he would drive a cab during the day. And then the mom was working also at a hospital with nurses' aid, very similar to what my mom did. And then uh, they would work long hours and they even with that, they were living in a poor neighborhood in, in the city of Boston. Uh, and so they, you know, the, the kids were usually left by themselves. They said, I want you to come and see what it's like to hang out with these kids on a typical day. Now, they have five kids, and uh, uh, four of them were in elementary school. And I'm reasonably certain that the teachers, as they were leaving school, gave them big bags of sugar, two-pound bags. And they drank it all or had it all because they were wired when, they got, when we got to their house. They were literally bouncing off the walls. They were jumping from the living room to the dining room. The furniture was falling apart. It was a, it was a crazy, crazy mess. And their two-year-old at that time, um, I'm pretty sure she was, you know, they made just four after her because she's lying on the ground. Two-year-old gives me the middle finger and uses like the most insane cursing I've ever heard. Like, I don't even know what curse words they were. But later, you know, I find out later, oh, those are real curse words. And so she's screaming at me as an exorcist for, you know, name of Jesus, uh, something. I, but this is all going on. There's chaos everywhere. Five kids running around and, and just destroying everything. And my million-dollar Citibank vice president in a corner crying out and, 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 and terrified. And as I'm looking at this chaos, I'm thinking, you know what? You keep those Knicks tickets. <laughs> you keep your soirees at the Met. And, and yeah, you keep even those, 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 that steak that melts in your mouth. Because right here is the kingdom of God. And there's nowhere else I would rather be in the midst of a pile of rubble where Jesus can be found. You will have church after church. Not just churches, but people in your life that have their 
buildings and their houses and their cars laid with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. And you will say, why are we in this hut? Why are we in this pile of rocks? But if Jesus is in the middle of that, if the desire of all nations shows up and fills this house with his glory, there is nowhere else you should be. Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for the work you've been doing. And I do pray a word of encouragement for this community. Lord, continue to fill this house with your glory. Fill this building and fill the people with the presence of your spirit that they might know that truly this is the house of the Lord and the glory of this house surpasses the glory of others when the desire of all nations fill this place. In your name we pray. Amen.